Volume One, Chapter Seven of Diana Temple, by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume One, Chapter Seven. Broad his shoulders are and strong, and his eye is scornful, threatening and young. Emerson. There was the usual crush at the speakers, the usual sprinkling of stars and orders and splendid uniforms. If it made Di feel limp to look at other people's diamonds, she would be very limp to-night. Two men, with their backs to the wall, somewhat withdrawn from the moving pressure of the crowd, were commenting, in the absolute privacy of a large gathering, of the stream of arrivals. "'Where is that old parchment face of the eyeglass?' asked the younger man, whose bleached eyes and moustache betokened foreign service. "'Which? Coming in now looks as if he had seen a thing or two. There!' He's talking to one of the Arden twins. That man, that is Lord Frederick Fane, an old reprobate. See, he's buttonholed Hemsworth. I should like to hear what he's saying to him. Look how his eye twinkles. He's one of our instructors of youth. Hemsworth has been standing there for the last half hour. He is waiting. Anybody can see that. So am I, though not for the same person. Whom are you looking for? Do you see that dark man with the high nose talking to the post office? There, the Duchess of Southwark has just spoken to him and is introducing her daughter. Do you mean that ugly beggar with a clean-shaved face and heavy jaw? I don't see that he is so ugly. He has got a head on his shoulders, and his face means something, which is more than you can say of many. There's no lack of ability there. He is one of the men of the future, and people are beginning to find it out. He's not taken any line in politics yet, but he's bound to soon. Both sides want him, of course. He's one of our most promising commoners, Tempest of Overley. The younger man glanced at the square-shouldered, erect figure and strong dark face with deep interest. Is he the man about whom there was a lawsuit when his father died? Yes. Colonel Tempest brought an action, but he lost it. There was no evidence forthcoming, though there was very little doubt how matters really stood. He's not like the Tempest. No, if you want a Tempest, pure and simple— Look at the man with tar-coloured hair in the further doorway, making running with the little soda-water heiress. That's a regular Tempest style. Now oh, he's too beautiful. He's overdone it, said the other. If he were less handsome, he would be better looking, and his hair looks like a wig. He has the face of a fool on him. The last two generations have had no grit in them. Jack Tempest, the last man, might have done something, but he never came to the fore. He was a trustworthy conservative, but not an energetic man like his father, the old minister, who lies in Westminster Abbey. Perhaps the present man will come to the fore. Perhaps. I know he will. You can see it in his face. And he has the prestige of his name and wealth to back him. But I don't notice which side he'll take. I know that he voted right at the last election, but so did half the Liberals. I'm inclined to think he has Liberal leanings but he refused to stand three years ago for the family constituency, which is an absolute certainty whatever he professes himself, and he has been secretary to the embassy at St. Petersburg for the last three years. He's very like his mother's family, except that the Fanes are not so ugly. Of course he's like his mother's family. It's an open secret. Look at him now. He's speaking to Lord Frederick Fane, his mother's uh, first cousin. There's a family resemblance for you. I wonder they stand together. His companion drew in his breath. The likeness between the elder man and the younger one was unmistakable. "'Does he know, do you think?' 
he asked after a moment. "'Of course he must know that there is a but about himself. People don't grow up in ignorance of such things. But I think he does not know that it is more than a suspicion, that it is a moral certainty, and that Lord Frederick—but it is seven and twenty years ago, and it is half forgotten now. He's not the only heir with a doubt about him. He'll be a credit to the Tempests, anyhow.' If the property had fallen into the hands of those two thieves, Colonel Tempest and his son, there would not have been much left of him for the next generation. "'Ah, oh, it's frightfully hot,' said the younger man. "'I shall bolt.' "'Just home from Africa and find it hot,' said the other. "'Ah!' with sudden interest, looking back to the doorway. "'I thought so. Hemsworth was not waiting for nothing. "'By God, she is handsome, and what a figure!' She's the tallest woman in the room, except Lady Delmore's two yards of unmanageable maypole. Look how she moves, and the way her head is set on her shoulders. If I had not a wife and seven children, I should make a fool of myself. I remember her mother, just as handsome twenty years ago, but not so brilliant, and with an unhappy look about her. Hang, Tempest, I won't wait any longer for him. I must go and speak to her before Hemsworth takes possession of her. You take my advice, John said Lord Frederick Fane, confidentially to his kinsman. "'Don't tie yourself to a party any more than you would to a woman. Leave that for fools like Hemsworth. Just go your own way and give no one a claim on you.' "'I intend to go my own way when I have decided where I want to go.' "'Well, in the meantime, don't commit yourself. Always leave yourself a loophole.' "'I don't see the use of worrying about loopholes if I don't want to back out of anything.' I should never consciously put in myself anywhere where it might be necessary to wriggle out on all fours. No, I dare say. I thought all that in my salad days, but you'll grow out of it as you get older. You'll chip your shell, John, like the rest of us, <laughs> and not be above a shift. There's not a man who won't stoop to a shift on a pinch, provided the pinch is sharp enough, any more than there is a woman, bespoken or otherwise, who does not like being made love to, provided it is done the right way. That's my experience. Lord Frederick's experience was that of most men of his stamp, the crown of whose maturer years, earned by a youth of strenuous self-indulgence, is a disbelief in human nature. Secret contempt of women, coupled with a smooth and adulatory manner towards them, show any too plainly the school in which these opinions had been formed. Look at Hemsworth, continued Lord Frederick as Mrs. Courtney and Di and Lord Hemsworth in close attendance were being gradually drifted towards the room in which they were standing. If Hemsworth goes on giving that girl a hold of him, he will find himself deuced uncomfortable one of these days. He'd better hold hard while he can. Discretion is the better part of valour. I've been telling him so. Why should he hold hard? said John, rather absently. After all, none but the brave deserve the fair. A number the brave can live with some of them. "'said Lord Frederick, chuckling. "'There are cheaper ways of getting out of love than by marriage. "'But she is a fine woman. "'Hensworth has got eyes in his head, I must own. "'I remember being dreadfully in love with her mother "'nearly thirty years ago, and she with me. "'She had that sort of stand-off manner "'which takes some men more than anything. "'It did me. "'I wonder more women don't adopt it. "'I very nearly married her. "'Ha, <laughs> ha! But, Tempest, your uncle made a fool of himself while I hesitated and was wretched with her, poor devil. I never had such a shave since. Upon my word, putting up his eyeglass, if I were a young man, I think I'd marry Di Tempest. Those large women wear well, John. They don't shrivel up to nothing like Mrs. Graham or 
expand like Lady Torrington, that emblem of plenty without waste. Ha, <laughs> ha! Look at Mrs. Courtney, too. There's a fine old pelican with an eye to the main chance. Always look at the mother and the grandmother if you can. But she's on too large a scale for you. Not in the least, said John calmly. I cherish thoughts of Miss Delmore, who is quite three inches taller. Oh, don't marry a Delmore. They are too thin. Those girls have neither mind, body, nor estate. I've seen two generations of them. They have a sort of prettiness when they are quite new. But look at her married sisters. They all look as if they've shrunk in the wash. I must go and speak to Mrs. Courtney, said John, from whose impenetrable face it would have been difficult to judge whether his companion's style of conversation amused or disgusted him. Three years' absence blunts the recollection of one's sins. And he moved away towards the next room. The recollection of a good many people, however, had apparently not become blunted, and it was some time before he could make his way to Mrs. Courtney, who was talking with a Turkish ambassador and revolutionising his ideas of English women. She was genuinely glad to see John, having known him from a boy. "'You know your cousin Diana, of course,' she said, as Di came towards them. "'Indeed I do not,' said John. "'I asked who she was at the Thesinger wedding to-day, and found myself in the ludicrous position of not knowing my own first cousin.' "'Not recognising her, you mean?' said Mrs. Courtney. "'Surely you must have seen her often in my house before you went abroad.' "'But I suppose she was in a chrysalis schoolroom state then, and has emerged into young ladyhood since. "'Here is your cousin saying he does not know you,' continued Mrs. Courtney, turning to Di. "'John, this is Di. Di, this is your first cousin, John Tempest.' Both bowed, and then thought better of it, and shook hands. Their eyes met on the exact level of equal height, and the steady, keen glance that passed between was like the meeting of two formidable powers. Each was taken by surprise. It was as if, instead of shaking hands, they had suddenly measured swords. "'If you don't know each other, you ought to,' continued Mrs. Courtney. "'Lord Hemsworth, what is that unwholesome-looking compound you've got hold of?' Uh, "'Lemonade for Miss Tempest.' "'Kindly fetch me some, too.' Mrs. Courtney turned away to continue her conversation with the Turk, who was still hovering near, and whose bead-like eyes under his red fez showed a decided envy of John. He and I were standing in the doorway that led into the last room where the refreshments were, and a stream of people beginning at that moment to press out again pressed them back into the room they had just been leaving. "'I shall upset this down someone's back in another minute and make an enemy of for life,' said Di holding her dull ass as best as she could. She would have given anything at that instance to say something unusually frivolous, in order to shake off the impression of the moment before. But her frivolity had temporarily departed with Lord Hemsworth. "'Don't oppose the stream. Subside into this backwater,' said John, placing his square shoulders between the throng and herself, and nodding to a recess by one of the high-arched windows. Having reached it, Di sipped the high-water mark off her lemonade. "'It's safe now,' she said. "'I don't know why I took it. I don't want it now I've got it. "'Have you seen Archie since you came back? "'You know him, of course. He often talks about you.' "'Yes, I saw him at the Thessinger wedding today. "'Were you there?' Oh, "'Yes, but only at the church. I didn't go on to the house. "'I disliked the whole affair too much. 
many marriages, half the marriages one sees, are only irrevocable flirtations. But the ceremony of today was not even that. Di looked away through the mullioned window, out across the river and its gliding shimmer, to the lights beyond. She did not know how long it was before she spoke. "'I think it was a great sin,' she said at last, in a low voice, unconscious of a pause that to her companion was full of meaning. "'Or a great mistake,' he said gently. "'No, not a mistake,' said Di, still looking out. "'The others, the irrevocable flirtations, are the mistakes. There was no mistake today, but it was a dull wedding.' she added with sudden self-recollection and a change of manner. "'Not like one I was at last autumn in the country. I was staying in the same house as the bridegroom, and he and the best man, a Mr. Lumley, got up at an early hour, woke some of the other men, and paraded the house with an impromptu band of music. I remember the bridegroom performed piercingly upon the comb. I wonder people ever play the comb. It is so plaintive. But perhaps it is your favourite instrument, perfected in the course of foreign travel.' and I am trampling on your feelings unawares. I used to play it, said John, but not of late years. I left it off because it tickled and increased the natural melancholy of my disposition. What were the other instruments? Let me see. Lord Hemsworth murmured upon a gong, and Mr. Lumby uttered his dark speech upon a tray. The whole was very effective. He told me afterwards that it was such a relief to his feelings which had been much lacerated by the misplaced affections of the bride. Di's laughing, mischievous eyes met John's fixed upon her with a grave attention that took her aback. She had an uncomfortable sense that he was regarding her with secret amusement. A moment before she had been sorry that she had inadvertently spoken with a force that was unusual to her. Now she was equally vexed that she had been flippant. "'Here you are!' said Lord Hemsworth, elbowing his way up to them. "'I've been looking for you everywhere. Mrs. Courtney is going and is asking for you.' End of Volume 1 Chapter 7